welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Anit Chandarana, lead director of the Great British Railways transition team, to join me on the virtual couch for this week's podcast. Good morning and welcome, Anit Chandarana, Lead Director for Great British Railways Transition Team. That's going to be one heck of a name badge with all that great big title on it, isn't it? My word. Um, A very warm welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast, Anit. It is an absolute joy to see you this morning. Thanks, Nina. Brilliant to be here. Um, Just getting ready for my holidays later this week, so couldn't have picked more more perfect time. Brilliant. So, uh, so we'll be part of your cool down and easing yourself into your annual leave, will we? That sounds good. That's <laughs> I'll do my best. So, as um, as as in, in intuitive insights tradition, we're going to start off with um, a journey through your career story to date. I'm absolutely confident that um, that everyone that's tuning in to this conversation on the podcast will know you as having worked with Andrew at Network Rail and now being the lead director at GBRTT. Um, I'd love to know more about what that actually entails uh, when we get to that part. But can I ask you to take us right back to the beginning, Annette, please, and talk us through your journey so far in terms of your career? Yeah, no, absolutely. And if, if we want to go right back to the beginning, I think my career journey starts uh, at about six years old. Um, uh, and it's not because my parents were into child labour. It's because <laughs> um, that's the first time that my mum recalls me saying something about what I wanted to be uh, when I was kind of older. Um, and, and even at that early age, uh, apparently she tells me I told her I wanted to be an accountant. So whilst my peers wanted to be astronauts or train drivers was quite a common uh, common thing uh, I wanted to be an accountant so some say I was destined to uh, to, 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 to be born from an early age rather others judge that um, <laughs> I disagree uh, so I am um, I uh, and, and actually that was that was that was my dream for for, for most of my career um, I uh, I it, it influenced the subjects I studied at school at university uh, I did accounts and finance. I went to Kingston University to study that. Um, and I chose that particular institution because it had the highest levels of exemptions for the professional exams that went forward. So it was a real, you know, key driver. Um, following university, I uh, I struggled to get a what I would call a proper job. Um, so uh, in kind of a graduate scheme or in a uh, in in an apprentice type environment or so on. So I, uh, my mum was working in my local Sainsbury's at the time, and she got me a job uh, uh, pushing trolleys because I I was getting bored at home, and, and I said to her, you know, everyone they got something for me to do. Um, and you know when you have kind of interesting things that happen because somebody just does something that makes a difference. Um, and the store manager kind of happened to ask me. What, what you know what, what I was up to and so on he, he clearly knew my mum um he said well if you if you've done accounts of finance maybe I should have you counting money in the cash office rather than pushing trolleys around so uh, I graduated to that um and actually he he 
became a bit of a um a bit of a he he a crusader on my behalf because he he kind of was clear you know he could see that what I really wanted to do was study to be an accountant so he went out of his way to find uh to find who I needed to talk to at Sainsbury's head office um and uh and as a consequence I got a place in uh in one of their finance departments and they sponsored me through uh, my studies and so that from my first five years uh, I worked at Sainsbury's various finance roles after um, after that first one and I culminated in being financial controller for uh, their bakeries uh, division. Can I just interrupt very yeah. very quickly there what was it about you that that store manager saw why didn't he just leave you pushing the trolleys on it what do you think it was about you that that encouraged him to be a crusader on your behalf um so 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 nina that's a really good question and one that um uh, one that personally i find quite difficult to answer because of who i am and my makeup um he clearly did see something there and I'm not sure I ever asked him that question, but if I were to, what would I hope he'd say? Yeah. Uh, or what do I think he'd say? Um, one, yeah, he was a people-centric person. You know, he, he uh, you could see that I wasn't the only one that he took under his wing. He had this kind of passion around his job as a store manager was to was to make the most of the people that were under his under his care for the yeah. time that they were there. So, so one, he had that that kind of certain bent to him. Secondly, um I I I I wasn't kind of a quiet trolley pusher, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had opinions and I and I'd speak about them. Um and um and maybe there was something in that that kind of meant that I I had a conversation with a store manager, a trolley person that perhaps most trolley people just weren't, you know, they'd be overly, def- overly deferential or, or, or so on. Yeah. Um, so what that, and, and many times in my career, people have often talked to me about this. Um, you know, if, if you're not prepared to have a conversation, then don't be prepared. Don't be surprised. People won't listen to what you've got to say. Um, maybe that's, that there was a lesson, really interesting question. I probably hadn't yeah. thought about that before. Yeah. yeah. I um I can think that's brilliant advice is to is to speak up and yeah. there is there is a tendency isn't there perhaps not um not as much now as there was um maybe when when we were in the early parts of our career but but yes if anyone had the title manager or director or had come to um so you know in my world in banking if somebody came from the head office then why would they want to speak to me? Because I was a teller. I was sitting on the counter, you know, kind of cashing checks and taking deposits in. So there was that feeling then. But amazing advice, actually, there is is to be willing to have a conversation with Indeed. whoever. And actually, I'm I when I mentor people, in, and I share that advice, and maybe there's a certain kind of person that comes towards me because of my characteristics. I think it, there is still. Um, that kind of stigma there is still that uh i know my place and therefore i'm going to sit in that place um uh and uh and actually you know i think it is also one of the characteristics of um uh, minority groups minority you know you see that in minority groups more so i was uh, you may know that um 
I'm a non-exec director in, in, in the NHS and I was in an interview there and one of the interviewers who, uh, one of the resourcing team who does lots of interviews was very clear that some of the behaviours that we saw as consistent behaviours from the women in the interview process from some of the ethnic minorities was uh, was driven by that kind of sense of uh, of standing back a bit more, and, it, yeah. and she was talking about how it's a it's a common pattern. Yeah. So something for us as leaders to think about when we're absolutely, resourcing. yeah, absolutely need to be aware of this most definitely. I'm glad we took that little detour, but I'll take you back to Sainsbury's. <laughs> um, so uh, five years on from uh, Sainsbury's, I then joined Shell UK Retail at a point in time where they were getting much more serious about the non-fuel retail offer. So they they were looking for people from places like food retail. Um, and, uh, you know, fascinating uh, journey for me because if you'd have said to me, even two years before I left Sainsbury's, was I did I envisage myself not being at Sainsbury's for a significant longer time? I'd have said no. I you know I could see myself being here for the majority of my career um, because I loved it there. You know I really enjoyed the fast-paced nature of food retail. I really enjoyed um, the the way that their finance function was seen as part and parcel of their organisation, not something that that sat to the side of the organisation. But when the opportunity came along from Shell to join them on um, retail, what I discovered was actually the the being involved in something that's new, that's fresh, uh, was was something that really interested me. Uh, being that opportunity to to set that up, and actually joining that organisation um, when it was under significant challenge, because my organizations like Sainsbury's were really hitting them hard on fuel margins um, and they were no longer the fat and happy fuel retailers they could be. Mm. Um, and in during my time at, at Shell, I did a number of things, always in their UK retail business, which is effectively the, the petrol stations you see at the side of the roads. Yeah. Um, I went from helping them set up their non-fuel offer in the stores um, still in a finance role, still in kind of financial analytical role, um, and over time moved towards what they call their franchise model. So the the the, the fuel retailers that own their own premises, but then the brand is franchised uh, to to them. Mm. And I guess that was my first real experience of operating as part of a leadership team, um, not uh, not being a finance support to one of the leadership team that then takes it being on the leadership teams um and i don't mean the most yeah executive team but i mean a leadership team that was there to do something and specific and accountable and it was the first place where people started talking to me about you know do you do you really you know do you really see your role or your future as a as, as an accountant or or something different and I have to admit, the first time somebody asked me that question, my reaction to that was, why don't you think I'm very good at finance? Um, and actually, what they were trying to tell me was, maybe uh, maybe you've got the ability to think broader than finance and, yeah. and, and, and the conversation. Uh, but I st- stuck steadfast to my dream of, uh, of that six-year-old boy wanting to be the best finance director I could be. So I continued there um and then i 
I describe probably the first time that I made a took the wrong took a wrong step in a role because um, I chose to do something for the wrong reason. So this was while I was at Shell, and um, we had moved out of London. Uh, we were originally as in the work location. Mm. Um, when I joined originally, we were in Waterloo. Um, and the uh, they had a programme of kind of moving out of London, so we moved out of London. And I was desperate to get back to London. Um, and I took a role that, whilst it was finance, um, was actually one that was much more back office finance. Right. And I really learned something there about a number of things. One, um, you know, whilst I'm not a believer in having a really dedicated career plan where you know every step you're going to take for the next five years and the next 10 years, not having some idea of what really I was about as opposed to what the role was about um, led me to take a slight misstep in that job. You know, just it was a, it was a job that uh, didn't get me, yeah, it, it did the debits and credits of accounting fine. And lots of people will tell you that's not my probably my biggest skill set in finance anyway. Um, but it was it was you know a pure accounting for accountants type role. It wasn't an accounting and business type role. Um, uh, and 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 I found myself at a misstep. You know, we we corrected that very quickly. Show had a brilliant kind of program of helping people reach that. But it was one of those life's journeys on on a career journey that actually you need a bit of a, a slight selfishness about your career choices, which is about what's good for you. Don't don't allow that to make you too risk averse or too hesitant but do be clear about the job is as good for you as it is for everyone else kind of yeah. thing yeah so um 2003 is when i left shell uh, and i joined network rail and i didn't join network rail because it was in the rail industry i never really saw the rail industry as something i wanted to be a part of it's it's i didn't see it wasn't but it wasn't something that i've been attracted to. the reason i joined network rail was because at that time, I'd begun to think about the IT industry and wanting to have a career in the IT industry, only because there was a bit of geekery around me and it just was something that, was, that, that I found interesting. And the role that, um, that NetRail had to offer was in its IT department um, uh, based in uh, near Great Portland Street. So I thought, well, I'll join them for two years. I'll have then you know, IT under me and I'll be able to then think about joining the IT industry. But like so many people that join this industry very quickly, this industry got under me. Because, and there's a real something for us to think about as leaders here, because I never understood what the rail industry was really about as an up-and-coming graduate or, or so on. I didn't take time out to, to understand it, agreed, so I hadn't done my part. But it, it wasn't something that, um, that, that would have drawn me to it. But what I really learned in those two years is actually how important the rail industry is to this country. Yeah. And it really, as I say, it really got under my skin in a way that I didn't anticipate. You're certainly not alone there, are you? There are so many people that I've spoken to over the last, um, it's nearly 10 years now since, since I've been working um, with the rail industry. And so many people feel exactly the same, myself included. You know, I, I, I joined, I set my, pitched my tent here because I thought that there was a need for change and transformation. 
and so therefore people like me able to bring um bring new talent new ways of thinking etc with new people um would be needed so that was my kind of that was me hedging my bets in terms of like how quickly that change and transformation was going to come about but it was so quick on it this feeling of i never want to work in any other industry it's the people yeah. the people yeah. that work in rail um are just and it's you know it, it's going to sound cliched and to anyone who doesn't work in the rail industry that they're, they're not going to get it but it's it's once you're in and you see the people the passion the drive for actually doing the right thing and and getting people from a to b from whatever reason that is it's, huge. Yeah, no, it's a huge agreed. attraction agreed and and um and i think the the breadth of careers that are offer that are on offer in the industry. <clears throat> when I talk to graduates, particularly with my background in finance, finance graduates who join uh, the rail industry, um, you know there are. If I if I think about my background, for example, at Sainsbury's, yeah, it's it's a huge organisation, but actually the experience offer there is relatively narrow. You know, it is a food retailer; it's a fast moving consumer goods business. Um, and therefore, it's a very profit and loss orientated business from a financial perspective. Mm. Um, and there are other businesses you could think of which are very balance sheet or- orientated, you know, long term businesses, contracting type organisations that we'd be familiar with in the rail industry. Where, whereas actually, the rail industry is, is an organ is an industry which can offer that full breadth. And I speak of that from the narrow perspective of, of, of somebody from finance. But actually, you know, when you talk to people who've had long careers in the rail industry, it's quite interesting as to actually within one career, how many different professional kinds of roles they've had. And I don't mean kind of formal profession. I mean, in terms of subjects that they've dealt with, Um, you know, you've got you've got people who uh, will have worked in train operations, infrastructure operations, who may have worked in asset management and actually there aren't that many industries that do offer that breadth and actually allow people to move around yeah. in, in that way. So, um, and maybe just to complete, go back to kind of my career story. Um, two years, I did leave Network Rail in 2005 for two years to go and run my own business. It was a, it was a, um, it was it was a kind of a secret dream I had for a long time, and I kept putting it off because you know there'll be it'll be better in two years. I'll be a bit more comfortable with my mortgage. I'll you know, I, I won't have so many commitments. And 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 the thing I realised was there was always going to be a good reason not to give it a go. Absolutely. Um, uh, but I did. Um, two years which were an incredible roller coaster ride. Um, we, me and a partner set up a business selling chickens to, to Sainsbury's, um, uh, which isn't quite as abstract as it sounds given my experience. <laughs> um, we made some horrible mistakes along the way. And the business folded at the end of two years because we were naive. You know, it'd be, it'd be really tempting to blame the horrible food retailers and, and so on. But actually, they did their job. We didn't do our job. Um, and and we, we folded at two years. But what was interesting then at the end of that two years, there was no hesitation about what I wanted to do, which was come back to the rail industry right. uh, and, and join that. And then after that culmination of finance roles um, through Network Rail, um, and then in um 2020 uh, i took on the role of chief of staff at network rail which was my first non-finance role yeah um and 
Uh, now, if you say to, to that six-year-old boy, what would you want to do? I probably would give a different answer to, I want to be the best finance director. Really, I, doing the chief of staff job really took the blinkers off my eyes about um, actually the, the ability to, to have a, a greater adventure beyond that. Mm. Um, and, uh, and now if you said to me, what's next? Actually, life will, will, will tell me what's next when we get there. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, will it be a finance director role? It might be, but it may not necessarily be. Mm. It may be. It may be something different. Can I ask you just to explore that a little bit further yeah. on it? When you saw the job description for the chief of staff role, were there particular things that jumped out at you that said, I really want to chuck my hat in the ring for this role because it's exciting because, and I guess equally were there things that you thought, oh, <laughs> not well, sure about that. Um, so, so. Was it a leap into the unknown, and was that was there a hint of fear in that? Of course, there was for me. Right. Um, I so the story here goes something like this: the uh, Andrew said to me, "Look, I've decided I want a chief of staff, and 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 um, you know, have you got any thoughts about who might do, who might be interested in that?" And what I didn't recognise that what he was saying to me was he'd, he'd love for me to put an application in, but. But I was I didn't see that, and it took him three conversations for me to to see that. By which time I probably failed the interview, uh, if I'm honest. Um, so, um, and and what appealed to me was one uh, I'd got to know and was working closely with Andrew and working. You know, for anyone who's worked with Andrew before, um, you'll you'll know that actually he's he's a he's an incredibly inspirational individual to work for, but in a really humble straightforward way um and uh the thought of having that closer working relationship with andrew was 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 a huge positive for it um i've been at neverwell for a long time and therefore i uh you know knew who people were and therefore and, and as a chief of staff that's a huge opportunity particularly given andrew was still relatively new to neverwell at the time yeah i knew the job um had a strong element of working with DFT on the Williams Review, and I'd already been involved in that, and that was something that was I was something I was keen to continue mm. uh, doing. Um, and then there was kind of from a very personal perspective, there was um, a realization that in a lot of ways, the work, the jobs I'd done in, for example, finance director roles supporting um, various functions within NetRail had quite an element of what was expected from a chief of staff, you know, being right. a key number two. And, <clears throat> and the combination of all of that gave me the courage to do something that I'd frankly been a bit fearful of before, which was stepping out of my professional line as finance yeah. director. Um, and I don't look back at all with any hint of regret of having taken that decision. Yeah. I absolutely would say that was the best role I've had in my career ever. Fantastic. And another example, I guess, of the of the store manager back at Sainsbury's um, with, with Andrew kind of recognising something in you. Yeah, correct. That it took you a while to catch up with the programme in terms correct. of, oh, well, yeah, I, I perhaps could do that. So, yeah, quite interesting, again, in relation to um, how you see yourself yeah. versus how others see you. 
Absolutely. There's no question of that. And, and you know, we should we should talk about that for a moment because you know, it goes back to that kind of self-awareness, self-analysis um, uh, reaction. So uh, it would be no secret to many of your listeners who know me that imposter syndrome is something that, that is, is about me. Mm. Um, and what that looks like for me is um, I often have this feeling of I'm here by luck, not by my hard work, not by my uh, efforts, not by my uh, success. Um, and there have been times in my career where that has been really debilitating for me. Right. Um, and I've had to figure out ways to manage that. Um, lots of people I've talked to about this uh, you know, tell me it's not, it's not something you'll ever be able to let go of completely, but actually understanding the signs of when it's preying on you are really important. And once you do, mm-hmm. my um, journey has been once I see those signs, now I know how to recognize them. Actually, there are lots of uh, lots of positive things you can do to over, overcome those kinds of uh, signs. Really simple things like um, uh, if somebody once noted that it's really difficult to say thank you to me or it was really difficult to say thank you to me because um, uh, I so felt like I didn't deserve thanks that it was that it was difficult for somebody to say it to me. Um, so the simple act of of accepting thanks is a really good technique for somebody who has imposter syndrome. Um, and the other one that is uh, is important is because I can't recognize as well in myself my you know when I've done a good job or I've done something well is actually to keep a key in in my drawer to keep a list yeah literally just a list of what have I done where I've succeeded because um some somebody some one of your listeners some of your listeners may know well um uh, Rob Brickhouse who who uh who's had a long career in the industry yeah. well, something he said to me once and I, I'm not sure he ever recognized the imposter syndrome but it was it was a really opportune moment um was that as as leaders a lot of a lot of us look continually up the mountain about how far we've yet got to climb um and particularly those who uh who come from kind of my background of 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 imposter syndrome um every now and again you do have to look how far you've come up the mountain just to remind yourself um and that's what my list of of achievements is about it's to remind myself about the mountain I've climbed as much as the mountain I've, I've got to yeah. climb. That is such brilliant advice on it. it. It really is. And I think, um, you know, when I'm talking to, to people who are looking for their next um, career adventure, um, my, my advice constantly is to look at what you've already achieved. And quite often we see CVs that are a, a kind of little mini job descriptions. You know, there'll be a job title yeah. and then there'll be a a few bullet points about what that role is. And what I'm really interested in is what you've done. So what have you achieved? And I think to have that ongoing book that you that you go back to, whether that's at the, I mean, I'd, I think end of the week, you know, wrapping up after the week, what's gone well this week? Because it is so, so easy to look at, as you've just said, to look at what you've still got to do in terms of how am I going to get to the, the top of that mountain? When quite often when you get to the top, you realise that actually there's just another bigger mountain right. behind it right. that you've got to do next. That right. is amazing advice. Thank you. Thank you right. for that. So on from the Chief of Staff, 
integrate British Railways. Yeah, indeed. Tell indeed. us what a lead director does for GBRTT. Yeah. Um, so my rather flippant answer is when I when I figure it out, I'll, I'll let you all know. But actually, <laughs> that's not fair, and I'll um, I'll do my best to to describe it. So so basically, we we've got a team um, in GBR transition team who who and we've got two big jobs to get done. One which is to stand up the GBR and the operating model of of, of GBR, um, and the other is to try and bring the industry together in, in the interim to, to deliver better outcomes uh, in, in between now and standing up GBR. And therefore, my role as, as lead director is to lead that whole group and to, to, to try and achieve that. I'm accountable to Andrew and to Sir Peter, uh, who in turn have been commissioned by the Secretary of State to, to stand up the transition team and to do those two, uh, two things. Um, and as part of that role, uh, you know, as long as, as well as that direct accountable to St Peter and to to Andrew, um, I uh, yeah, uh, Conrad um, uh, is is the uh, SRO for the program overall. So I also have an accountability to him, um, and yeah, ultimately um, the buck stops with me. Um, that's that's the easiest way of me, you know, uh, putting it. Um, and uh, when we when we started setting up GBR transition team for for a period of time, I was double hatting. I was continuing to do the chief of staff role mm. as well as doing this lead director role. Um, and in about October last year, Andrew and I sat down and went, "That's not a tenable option option for anyone." So 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 we agreed that we would replace uh, the chief of staff role at Network Rail and I'd take on the GBR trans, trans transition team. So mm. um, you know for for better or for worse, uh, that's that's what the, the 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 role that I've chosen to do, in in a quite atypical fashion for me actually. Mm. You know that that um, yeah, even when I came home and said to the missus that I'm doing this, she clearly was very very happy for me. But she was like, yeah, normally I'd have really had to persuade you to do this oh. and, and 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 have a good long conversation with you about it. Um, and, and honestly, if you ask me what was different and why, um, it's difficult to pinpoint other than um, yeah, given the choice, who wouldn't? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The yeah. opportunity to make this kind of difference in an industry that I think is so important for us as a, as a nation and that I think can do a much better job of delivering the outcome um, for, for passengers, for freight users, for taxpayers, for the country at large, um, who wouldn't? Mm. I think there might be some people watching who would say, well, I wouldn't. I'd be running 100 mile an hour in the opposite direction because it's going to be hard. It's not an easy job. Um, and one, one of the things that I find really fascinating is that as, as we've listened to your career story and it's been very much about, um, as you've said, you know, it's about accountancy, it's about finance. And then finding in, in your time with Shell, having a, your first leadership role and starting to discover that um, that actually it's not just about the numbers it's about the people side of things Indeed. and the behaviours side of things. And, and, and I think you have such an unassuming nature about you in terms of, of how you present yourself, that people are attracted to that in terms really of, of, yeah, of, of being, being led by you because 
you're very straightforward. Or certainly that's that's my um, that's my experience of you. Well, that's very kind, um, and you know, others will judge me for for that. If I and one of my journeys on leadership, maybe just to kind of touch on that, my in terms of mindset, yeah, was so you know I grew up in the eighties, um, and my impression of leadership was people like Margaret Thatcher um, and uh, um, yeah, Barrett business barons uh, who would typically be portrayed as you know these this kind of table thumping decisive individuals who uh who for whom unassuming would be the very uh, opposite kind of yeah. description that you'd give um and that's and, and and as a consequence of that that's not something i ever identified with mm. um and and frankly the other issue at the time in the 80s was uh there were no leaders that looked like me you know, there are no leaders from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, uh, in, indeed, in one very important aspect, Margaret Thatcher was very atypical for a leader because she was a woman, and that wasn't, uh, you know, um, uh, the norm. And, and, uh, and whatever our political views are, that was a threshold moment to see a, a woman prime minister um, in 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 the eighties, which was kind of, you know, now we look back, was was still a a very um, a very uh, non um non-diverse uh, no. world yeah. um so yeah what and so i never thought of myself as either being a leader or having the qualities of leadership um and it was um it was it was an individual who uh, during my early time at network rail who um who really took me under his wing, um, Ian Coucher, who was our chief exec at the time, yeah. and, the, and and kind of began to show me the diversity of what leadership meant and, and actually really encouraged me to... I used to run a process which meant that I, I engaged with kind of exec and leaderships of, of Network Rail at the time. And before the sessions would happen, Ian and I would review the papers and he'd say, what's your views and so on. And one of these pre-sessions, he said to me, how come she never expressed this view in the meeting itself? And I said, well, it's not my job. My job is to be the secretary to the meeting and da-da-da. And he went, well, if that's what you always want your job to be, then great. But, you know, you've got something to say, say it. Mm. Um, and he dropped me in it in one second. He said, well, Annie, you've got, you've, got, you've got something to say about this. Why are you saying it? <laughs> so I said it and, and I learned. And what was really interesting in, in that environment which is why I think things like um, kind of comments, uh, rather shadowing and so on, is really important to people in, in you know, coming up in, in in the industry. Was the conversations that happened around that table started opening my eyes to actually leaders are no different to me. You know, they they do put the proverbial trousers on one leg at a time. Yeah, um, and. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. What I meant that so it's not that they were no different to me, and I'm I'm as I'm I'm as the same as them. They were just people, yeah. and they were different. And and maybe when I saw them in some kind of official forum, either I put them on a on a pedestal and 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 put that veil over them, or they felt the need to put the veil over themselves. Mm -hmm. But it opened my eyes, and it's where my eyes first kind of went maybe that's kind of what I aspire to be, 
still in the finance field at that point, but a leader yeah. in the finance field. Um, so, um, yeah, important little life journeys along the way. Really, really important. I could, I could just there's so much to unpack and explore here. So there's we, we'll leave that for another time. Sure. Um, and which I'm I'm really excited to to come back to. Um, for the purposes of of today's podcast, let's move on, Amit, to where I get my um, metaphorical magic wand out and say. We, we've got we're in interesting times I think it's fair to say so so we're recording this on the 7th of July um there are interesting things happening we've just um Mr Johnson is just about to vacate number 10 uh, as we speak um mm-hmm. all sorts of other stuff going on um taking all that I guess into account and looking at what you would like the future of the railway to be what would be your three wishes well, the first thing I'd say is, look, the railway will endure all of that. You know, the railway is important to the country and it, it needs to be here. So it will endure all of that. Um, but, if you know, in terms of in terms of wishes, first of all, um, we say we want to put the customer at the heart of the industry, and I think that's just, just so important. The railways can do a huge amount of good. We know, you know, what they can do. They, they bring people together. They uh, they create moments of happiness. They create business opportunities. They are a driver of our economic and social well-being in the country, and we saw that. Um, so really, <clears throat> really thinking about the customer, it, it will only do all of those good things if people use the railways, and people will only use the railways if we're really clear about what do customers want that is going to get them to, to use the railways. And I don't mean... Um, uh, the, what does the customer want? And you just have to do everything they want. What does the customer want that's going to get them back onto the railways? It's a lesson I learned when I was when I was at Sainsbury's and, and other retailers below that. And I forgot over a period of time. Mm. And being back in the role I'm doing now, it really comes home to me. So wish number one is that customers see us living the dream of putting them at the heart of everything we do. Wish number two is this concept of simplicity. I think it's it's what we need to do to deliver number one, but much yeah. more than that, um, both by necessity and by accident, we have created a world that's incredibly complex. And in a lot of ways, we have passed that complexity on, for example, to our customers. You know, if you take a look at our fare structures today, we say to the customer, we can give you whatever fare you want, but you're going to have to find it. And, figure it out for yourself <laughs> yeah and 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 you know that leads to a position where um where customers don't trust us in terms of fares they believe lots of our customers tell us they walk away from booking a ticket believing that they could have got a better option somewhere but they ran out of time so that's my second one about simplicity yeah. and rationale for that and and the third wish is around diversity inclusion and equality um doesn't matter what anyone tells you, we as an industry do are not well uh, well shaped in that way. Yeah. Um, I can tell you people, uh, and, and my particular drive is around ethnic uh, because of my background, but I know this applies to all, um, you know, everyone who's, who's, from an, uh, who's from a minority background. Yeah. Um, doesn't matter what your organisation tells you, 
we are way behind in this agenda. Agreed. Um, you know, I know that, for example, when we ask people from an ethnic minority in network rail, what is your lived experience in network rail? It shocked us. Yeah. Um, and so my second wish is, regardless of your background, feeling like you can be yourself in our industry. And I'll be clear, this isn't because somebody tells me there's a business case for it. This is just about justice and fairness. And so my third wish is, uh, uh, is that we can deliver an industry that has equality, diversity and inclusion as part of what it is. Yeah. We're a long way from that. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, agreed. We need to do it. We need to have an industry where we can all feel that we are welcome and we can be ourselves. Um, and a hundred percent agreement from me that we are a long way from where we need to be. Um, three wishes which speak very much to my heart. Um, I think in in terms of all three of them, Annette, um, and and let's hope that there are enough people and trust that there are enough people who are working in the industry who want that too. And we're all facing in the right direction and we're going to up the pace and up the momentum to make this change happen. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so one last question before sure. we bring this particular conversation to a close. Um, in terms of, and I, I kind of feeling like with that last, with the third wish there around the diversity and inclusion and the equality, um, I feel like we, I want to mention here that you have very, very kindly agreed to take part in a live webinar later this year um, in terms of that particular subject. So it will be the third in our series of three for 2022. We've just held one earlier this week, which we've had amazing feedback. I saw, from, I saw, yes. Um, incredible feedback um, all around the subject of belonging and being yourself. So, um, so as many of these conversations as we can get started, the better. Um, and my thanks to you in advance for being our very special guest later in the year. So, Amit, I'm going to ask you to, to leave us with, um, with one more thought in relation to something that has helped you and something that's inspired you and asking you to share the title of a, a favourite book that you have read that you feel has, has really supported you in your career. Yeah, life, so, I guess. Yeah, no, really easy, easy one for me. Um, there's a book called Feel the, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by a lady called Susan Jeffers. Um, and it's about how she coped with uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, a hugely, uh, she had a big role as a, as, as a consultant in, in a hospital uh, doing important work. No one would ever guess that she uh, suffered from imposter syndrome. And it describes her journey and it really resonated for me. Um, as uh, as something that, uh, that helped expose for me the feelings I was having uh, just came home to me. Yeah, thank you. I read that book many, many years ago, and I completely agree with what you've just said. And what you've done there is given me a nudge to get it back off the bookshelf again <laughs> and give it another read. Um, and it, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, as I, as I do every single one we have. I learn something. I feel inspired. I feel positive about the future. I'm really delighted that you are in the position you're in, in the industry, because um, we, we talked on, on the webinar earlier this week, the phrase accidental leader came up. And uh, and the fact that that some it works for some people, but actually other people we need to give a lot of support to to help yes. them go from a functional uh, kind of you know their 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 functional job into a leadership role, 
Um, and I just think that what you are bringing to the party is so of its time and so what this industry needs. Oh, so um, so my my best wishes to you for more success in the future. And my huge thanks to you for joining me on um, Intuitive Insights podcast. Not at all. Uh, it's been it's been really good fun. And thank you for inviting me to join. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Annette. Huge thanks to Annette for what I think you will agree was a really open, honest and thoroughly interesting trip through his career story to date. Um, Huge thanks and thank you to you for listening.